Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and paying attention to things is how we show love, and also how we hate watch. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I'm 10 miles west of Boston. And where the fuck are those mountains? <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of... Violent non-state actors and cultural transmission. Today, we'll be talking about The Last of Us, the show. Mm -hmm. I think we should make that very clear, Dan. Yes, I agree. We have some gamers that listen to the show. Yes, and we are not going to be talking about the game, except tangentially at best. I have read about the game, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) I've done some reading about the game, and that'll just have to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Last of Us, the show, has been on HBO Max, fulfilling their Sunday downer quotient that they have to do (laughs) in the next few weeks we'll be talking about the core and then prospect dan why are we talking about prospect you tell me i mean pedro pascal right like we gotta we we, we like him so much we're gonna talk about him twice exactly can't get enough and he's 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 a typecast daddy right we love that and i should add that i think in our original schedule we were going to do this a little bit later but we realized we had the opportunity to talk about it just after the season finale so it seemed appropriate to actually be somewhat topical Somewhat topical. Yes. Like apocalypse puns. <laughs> yes. If you haven't yet, please consider becoming a patron. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash space the nation. You get got things if stuff. you do that stuff. Yeah. Benefits. Perks. Well, actually, more benefits than stuff. Still it's more social and psychic than, than tangible would be the way to yes, put it. Yes, that is correct. You are able to access episodes early, and also you get to become a member of our Discord, which is sincerely the best thing about being a patron i think and you also get to join the discord which in my book is the best thing about being a patron we However, do have if, lovely patrons i have to say that's true. we do yeah. we do and we listen to them maybe too closely because i think we both <laughs> both have a thing about not being gamers like yeah we're both I'm clearly sensitive about, about this. it yes exactly yeah that's true that's true <laughs> They really want us to like review games. They really, really want it. And we're just never going to be able to do that. I think what we might so, have to do at some point is literally just record a podcast where we are just playing a game and like see during the span of like a normal length of podcast how many times we die. I, I <laughs> Maybe. Maybe do that as a live thing. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Time. That's exactly I, how we should I do it. Yes. Yes. I think we should do a Twitch stream, basically. We, we should okay. do a Twitch stream of us being incompetent gamers. Oh, it would be so bad. It would be so bad, Anna. Yeah, I am... I Whatever. I have actually ranted about this on the Discord, which, again, the best thing about being a patron is you get to be on the Discord. Dan and I both appear there. Dan has is no longer an absent father to the Discord. <laughs> no, now he I'm a stern and disapproving father. He shows up for his weekends on a regular basis. <laughs> I'm a withholding father, Anna, which is a good theme for this episode, I would add. That is true. Uh, If you are already a patron or for whatever reason can't be a patron, won't be a patron, well, still tell your friends and neighbors, I guess, even if you're not a fan of the show, but why are you listening? Why am I watching? This is actually a great segue, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Because why are you listening if you're not a fan? I have some thoughts about that. Uh, Dan, we have some other stuff to say. What about social media? So I'm still like, you know, on Twitter. Uh, Anna is not, but you can certainly reach us on Mastodon or at Post. We're also doing other things. I have a substack called Dresner's World, where, in fact, I actually did write a column about The Last of Us about a month ago. Anna uh, has a column at The New Republic. In fact, Anna, I believe you just wrote about Ron DeSantis uh, the past week. 
I did. I wrote about Ron DeSantis because I ha- I came up with a line and then had to write a column. Do you do that? <laughs> yes, I do. I do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm yeah. glad I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one in all seriousness. Yeah, okay. So Ron DeSantis, the, the charisma of a pair of cargo shorts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Ouch. And then I just wrote around that, basically. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I don't think he's going to be in much competition for Trump. That is the shorter version. Yes, of the in the column, you call him, like, you, I, I actually winced reading, you know, Scott Walker, Tim Pawlenty. I was like, oh, ow, ah. Yep. Just, yep, yep. So, Dan, yeah. how are you? I'm doing pretty well. You know what? I'm, 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 I'm reasonably Sometimes happy. Sometimes when people go up like that, I get worried. No, 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 no. Doing okay. well. I was just thinking, like, you know, once again, the Space the Nation Oscar aura appears to be working because uh, everything everywhere all at once cleaned up at the Oscars. We actually talked about everything everywhere all at once on the pod. So, you know, who knows what movie this next year is, you know, going to receive a similar benefit from Space the Nation. That's at least my theory. Moonfall was robbed. I'll say it again. <laughs> I still think Anna, the single funniest thing I said I said on this podcast in the last two and a half years was whether the controversy over whether Moonfall would be best adapted screenplay or best original screenplay. <laughs> that is the single funniest thing you've said. I yes. don't know. I mean, there's, I, I'll put it up there. Okay. I mean, yeah, I can't yeah. recall any other line. <laughs> the top of my oh, head. oh, ouch. Okay. Fair enough. Dan, why are we talking about Last of Us? Tell me that. I think there are three reasons we're talking about The Last of Us, Anna. First, as we've said, we both feel guilty that we're not really gamers, and this is the closest I think Anna and I will ever come to actually talking about a video game on the pod because The Last of Us is adapted from the Nasty Dog uh, video game, and there is a fair amount of fidelity, in fact, to the video game on this show. Which we know by reading. Yes, or watching. (laughs) Well, no, by reading, I mean, I know it's faithful to the video game because I read what the video game is about. Whereas I was watching YouTube clips comparing the two. So, yes, you can also do that. Yeah. Second, the pilot takes place in the two places where Anna and I live. It starts in Austin and then moves to Boston. So Boston, Austin, (laughs) access forever, baby. That's all I got to say. And finally, Anna, you know, I, I like to think that I'm close to the pulse of the, the sort of the, the social zeitgeist. And my understanding is that there's this Pedro Pascal guy who's a popular actor right now. Am I correct in that uh, uh, assumption? Dan, he's having a moment. Yeah. (laughs) He's having a moment, that's for sure. I was talking to a friend of mine this morning about him and how he's in this funny genre of, like, interesting hot guys, (laughs) like Michael Shannon. Okay. You know, like, not, like, hot, hot, but, like, not traditionally gorgeously handsome you know, Interesting. He, like so th- a Timothy Chalamet, like a like you know, like a Timothy Chalamet, like that is just he was molded by God into the face of an angel. Right? Oh wow! Okay, so I I grant you, I'm a heterosexual man, so this is not exactly <laughs> my wheelhouse. But to me, Pedro Pascal is way hotter than Timothy Chalamet. Right, because he's interesting and he has like a lived-in face. And we were talking yeah. about how it is that he, like, he used to be hot, hot. Like mm-hmm. he used to be like a young, handsome actor, yeah, like yeah, unlined yeah. face. You right. know, yeah. he's hotter now. <laughs> and it's not that he's a silver fox like Chris Pine, who's like just Middle-aged, aesthetically yes. more beautiful now. Yes, he's more interestingly beautiful now. And also his personality is clearly, like, winning. Yes. No, that is true. Like, I don't know if you saw his Saturday Night Live. Uh, I, did. Um, I did. He was he was very good at that, and yet he was actually very bad because he broke a lot. But it was ridiculously charming, actually. 
Yeah, I, he's like, I want to be friends. I just want to be friends with. Him. I want to yeah. be more than friends. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Good for you. But you I'll know t- what? I'll take friends. I think Pedro. Pedro, <laughs> you know, you could do a lot worse. You could do a lot worse than Anna. I think you actually, you and Anna would be a great couple. So just think Thank about you. it. You know, you know, just he's, just he's, he's the same age as my ex husband, which is not too young. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, also, I want to say that Craig uh, Mazin, Mazin, mm-hmm. Mazin, Mazin. Uh, who is one of the showrunners along with Neil Druckmann, right. who was the creator of the game. Yeah. He also produced Chernobyl, which oh, was amazing. I found immensely disturbing. Yeah. Fantastic and disturbing. I had trouble. People will probably guess what episode I had trouble with. Oh, God, uh, I didn't warn you off watching that. I I, I actually told Erica no, not I to watch that it. episode. No, I heard about it. I heard about it. So, um, yeah. It was a disturbing uh, episode. Yes. It's a, it's a dog massacre yeah that's yeah, what it is yeah. so for valid if, reasons if you, but yeah for valid reasons but i could not watch yeah. uh anyway he became a hero of mine because he was once ted cruz's roommate dan <laughs> ah and he spent 2016 just hating on ted cruz and it was really lovely to watch so i feel like we have a kinship like he should really should be my friend. Like I think that we would have a lot to talk about. Fair so, enough. so to to I review, was interested in the show for you sure. You want to be friends with Craig Mazin more than friends with Pedro Pascal? Are we? Are we? Are or we friends with benefits with? Pedro okay, yeah, Pascal. there we go. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Got it. Yeah, I would settle. I would settle for that. Like he doesn't have to be my <laughs> life partner. I think you know what I think that's a kind of flexibility that that Pedro would be yeah. into. Is all I'm saying. I, I think I think I think he might. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think he has a lot of flexibility about some stuff like that. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Dan, um, enough fun with Pedro. Well, yes. oh no, we're gonna have more fun, fun with, Pedro, with Pedro. Let's be clear. Yeah. <laughs> Will this podcast ruin the show for people? I think it will ruin it for you. I would strongly recommend watching the season before listening to this podcast, if for no other reason that, um, in particular, the last episode has a plot twist, which, if you're familiar with the game, is not anything it's, new. But We can argue about whether or not it's a twist. Well, okay, but it's an important part, and <laughs> okay. it's, yes. it's probably better if you don't know about it going in, is the way I would put it. But if you've, wa- if you've played the game, no, under no circumstances is this podcast going to ruin it for you. What do you think, Anna? <laughs> I think if you are a violence-sensitive person, you might want to hear the podcast first. Hmm. Because you might want to know what's coming. It is very violent. It is a it is a very violent show, I think. I think that it's not, like, bloody violent, but there's just a lot of intense personal violence. Like, it happens. Yes. Like, it's not gory, per se. What would be no. more accurate is, is that in some ways, precisely because it's so well acted, the violence is visceral in a way that... That it wouldn't necessarily feel on a more schlocky zombie show, for example. And I have to applaud it. We'll we'll talk more about what I liked and what I didn't like about yeah. it. But one thing I liked about it is that there there are scenes of violence where people the victim is humanized, which usually doesn't happen in video games for yeah. sure. Oh yeah, that's very true. Right. No, I one of the I think the best thing And it's disturbing. Like they make yeah. they it's like you have to kill somebody and it's not like killing them in a video game. Right. Like it's and, a person with a name and a life, and you kill them anyway. And I would give credit to both Neil Druckmann uh, and Craig Mazin on this point. They were clearly acutely aware of this, the distinction between playing a video game and translating it to a television show. And they take the violence seriously, and and that's the mm-hmm. way I would put it. Yeah. So speaking of which, Anna, you know, it's a little odd because this is a new show, obviously, but what was your previous experience, or if any, with this intellectual property? People tell me all the time about games I would like, even for a non-gamer. Like, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I have a collection of these, you know, like yeah. the people are like, oh, you know, you really like Bioshock has a, there's a, actually, I have played one Bioshock game ah, and okay. I did 
sort of enjoy it. There you go. But I was so bad at it that <laughs> it's impossible to enjoy something you're that bad at. That is my problem with video games. It's not that I'm opposed to the art form, and I believe that it can be an art form. Oh, yeah. It's just I grew up on Atari's where you just had the joystick and the one button. Yep. I grew up on a and, television, same thing. And I just can't do the multiple buttons and the two joysticks with the thumbs and all the different things you can do. It just, I, just not the way that my fine motor skills work. I understand. You? I have a special attachment to this video game, actually. Not that I've ever played it, but as I think I've said on the podcast before, when I took my son to Comic-Con about 10 years ago, I think, Ten and a half. There was a panel on The Last of Us, and it hadn't come out yet. And so I believe Neil Druckmann was there. I believe some of the actors, like Ashley Johnson, um, who plays Ellie in the game, were there as well. And I have to admit, I'd never been at one of these things before, and maybe this was typical, but I don't think so. I was honestly blown away by the care they had put into the video game in terms of sort of, you know, making the acting as realistic as possible, you know, creating the settings, so on and so forth. And so even as someone who was not a gamer, I admired the craft that was clearly going into this. So I was actually happy to learn that it was considered a, a really good video game because it clearly deserved it. There's been a lot written about the show. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was a lot of interest in it before it debuted because of Mason, and I think also because of the way that Last of Us is considered to be, you know, high art. Yeah. Video prestige video. Are we prestige in prestige video, video maybe, game? Maybe that's the prestige the way video. To think about it. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I have read a fair amount of, about both Truckman and the game, and he is, I think, unusually talented, mm -hmm. considered to be unusually talented in his vision for, for gaming. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think there are other games that take that kind of care. Oh, yeah. But, no, no, no. I don't want to say The Last of Us is unique. But my impression but, yeah. is that he's considered to be like yeah. one of the best, you know. Which might explain, we should we should get to the story behind the story on it. Yes. And in some ways, I think part of the reason The Last of Us has generated so much ink, as it were, is because it it's received glowing reviews and part of the reason, I think, is because it seems to have broken what we call the video game curse, which is right. there have been lots of adaptations of video games uh, in a variety of both film and, and television. I think the success ratio of most of those has been from mediocre to abysmal. How did The Last of Us break the video game curse? Well, I think that the long answer to that exact question is going to unfold as we talk about it, which mm -hmm. is to say, like, how is it so good or how is it prestige mm -hmm. like what is it about it that makes it feel like good television you know what is its appeal and i i can't fully answer that what i can tell you is why hbo decided to make a prestige television show out of a video game which is craig mason basically mm -hmm. but his backstory is really interesting yes because uh, he does not start in prestige tv does he anna no 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 <laughs> <laughs> if you look at imdb he has he his his career takes some interesting turns, or rather, yeah. a turn. Yes. Uh, he was mainly known for for kind of juvenile comedies. Uh, <laughs> he, he wrote Hangover 2, mm -hmm. Scary Movie 3, and 4. Oh, okay. And a handful of other genre comedies, I guess you would say. Like, perhaps that's a way to put it. Yeah, yeah. I think he wrote uh, the, the one with just, uh, Jason Bateman and Melissa McCarthy, right? Like the... The one about the scam artist, Tammy, or something, I can't remember. All right, so, okay. Yeah. Like, but he would comedy. Comedy, uh, definitely comedy. Definitely comedy. He also, however, was somehow also known in Hollywood among the 
cognoscenti yeah. as a great script doctor. Ah. And he was like friends with the guys, uh, the showrunners for Game of Thrones and some other prestige shows. Oh, okay. And they went to him for advice on stuff. Like he was considered kind of a craftsman. He has a podcast about screenwriting as oh, well. Okay. And then one day, 10 years ago, he decided, you know, the shit they're giving me to fix is below me <laughs> which i think is like a healthy healthy thing to realize in a way okay on and the he's one like, hand I, he's clearly like clearly talented but on the other hand i to be fair to the hollywood producers if you're looking at the imdb and it's like oh he's the screenwriter for scary movie three and four what actually is below that at this point i mean you know yeah, i'm just gonna point that well, out well okay okay yeah. but he's like but what his his uh what he decided is i'm gonna have to write the thing that's that's actually what I want to do ah. and, and is at my level. And that right? is fair. Yes. Okay. Am I, if I, if I want to break above this yeah. thing that I've been typecast in, um, in the suit level, right? right. Like, so yeah. what the problem was like other creatives saw him as their equal and mm -hmm. as, you know, prestige worthy or whatever, but the suit, the suit saw scary movie four and bat and exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So he decided he got really interested. So he decided he wanted to do some kind of, you know, miniseries. And he heard about, the, I get the anniversary of Chernobyl, I oh, think. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he started doing research on it and became fascinated. Mm -hmm. It is fascinating. And then, you know, had the script. I think it was the Game of Thrones dudes that got him a connection to HBO. Which is interesting because Chernobyl was the the sort of show that immediately followed Game of Thrones. Like after the Game of Thrones wrapped up, that was the next sort of Sunday night show they showed, and it was amazing. I got to say, right. And so, yeah. and then he gave a pitch for Chernobyl, which uh, the person at HBO who heard it in the article I read said it was the best pitch he'd ever heard. Wow. And I think we can I can sort of say and and from then on out, you know, like uh, Chernobyl did so well yeah. that they gave him his pick of projects. <laughs> Otto, was the pitch that he gave just Jared Harris, Jared Harris, Jared Harris? Because <laughs> that, that would have worked for you. Is all I'm saying. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had his pick of projects, and mm -hmm. then somehow actually sold them on The Last of Us. And I think it was basically clout that did it. Clout mm. and the fact that Neil Druckmann had been pitched himself to make a movie of The Last of Us for the past ten years and refused to. Mm -hmm. And had been kind of waiting for the right partnership. And and Mazin is himself a gamer. That's part of the story, too. Ah, okay, that's good to know. Yes. And I would and, add, but, the, the Last of Us would have been a bad movie. I mean, I, there is oh, yeah. a lot of story here. Like, trying to compress this into even, like, three hours would have been hard. And probably not yeah. very good. So I think it's it's sort of, a, I love the story of Mazin. Druckmann also has kind of an interesting personal journey as well. But mm -hmm. I, I love the story of him deciding that he needed to make his own career as someone yeah. who's had to do that yeah. a few times. Yes. <laughs> and then also he is someone who I think genuinely loves his craft. I think mm -hmm. Druckmann, the impression I get from Druckmann is the same as well. Mm -hmm. And we we, I think here at the pod have a soft spot for people that just love making things yeah you know like the attachment and, and sometimes that's what we talk about that raising the good bad movie mm -hmm. you know when right. someone is just loves doing what they do and it really comes across mm -hmm. and i think that that comes across in in this show that's and if people true. haven't seen the little after show things that he does yeah. it comes across very much when he's talking about the show. Yeah, I agree. So good to know, Anna. Um, by the way, I'm just sort of curious, you know, in our IP as a flat circle category, uh, I assume there's more involving The Last of Us. 
There is a Last of Us Part 2, which Mm -hmm. is going to be the basis for Seasons 2 and 3, so I understand. And there is a Last of Us standalone game, Last of Us Left Behind, which is kind of a prequel that is the Maul story that was the Maul episode in this show. Okay, good to know. I want to know there's an official podcast, and I'm noting that because I'm going to start mentioning that when it happens for other stuff we do because okay. there's starting to be a lot of that <laughs> yeah no i've noticed that a lot of shows that i'm watching now like say you know here's the companion podcast or what have you yeah, yeah, yeah so there is yeah. a companion official podcast to this which mm-hmm. i i kind of want to listen to but i also enjoyed the journey of like not knowing as much so yeah. Yeah. so so it, if you're really into it though i mm-hmm. bet it's good mm-hmm Let's get to Chekhov's What's It. This is the uh, thing that often appears in the first act or first episode of a show that winds up playing an important role down the road. Anna, what do you have? Chekhov's forehead scar, Dan. That was good. That was good. And I was legitimately surprised by that. I was not expecting that to be the source of the scar, I confess. I... You saw it coming? I'm not going to say I saw it coming. It's more like... It made total sense, yeah. which I think is a compliment to the show. Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And you, Dan? Chekhov's baby girl. She did go off. <laughs> she did go off. <laughs> but yes, it was, you know, you hear Joel say it in, uh, in the first episode with his real daughter, Sarah, and then he says it again in episode eight when he sort of counsels a, a very much in shock Ellie. Yes, that is correct. Maybe we'll talk about that scene. Yeah, Maybe yeah. not. It's it's one of the one of the ones that really does a it 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 makes that violence personal. Yeah. So yeah. Dan, we have this new short form version of the pod where I get I let you off the hook <laughs> and you get to do it just a quick like blurb version. Right. With, of, of the plot? With either books or with television seasons, we have decided that this is a better way of doing it. Because if we had tra- actually tried to recount the entire plot, you know, there would be issues like whether I would actually be able to teach classes and or, you know, spend time with my family. So the jacket blurb version of uh, The Last of Us as follows. The back of the VHS tape yes. version. Oh, oh, that's even better. That's a good Gen X yeah. reference. Yes, exactly. Don't you hate it when civilization collapses over the weekend? Joel Miller sure does. A fungal infection called cordyceps becomes embedded in the food system in the early fall of 2003. By Friday, September 26, 2003, enough people had consumed it, became infected with cordyceps, and then started biting people and thereby spreading it to others. By the Monday after that weekend, everything is gone, including Joel's daughter, Sarah, who was killed by a soldier, leaving him and his brother, Tommy, to survive on their own. Flash forward 20 years, and Joel is living with Tess in a Fedra QZ, that is short for Federal Disaster Response Agency Quarantine Zone, in Boston. Fedra is your typical carceral bureaucracy, uh, barely functioning, and dealing with a rebel movement called the Fireflies who want to overthrow the system. Joel is just trying to earn enough from his black market operations to get a working car to head to Wyoming and find Tommy, who joined the Fireflies sometimes in the 20 years over the past, but has gone dark on the radio. I was a little surprised about how brief our time in the QZ was, Dan. I mean, mm-hmm. I know the whole story is their journey across country, right? But it seemed like a weird amount of time to spend in the QZ. If I, it's it's both too short and too long, I don't know how to put it. But I, we don't get a sense for what life is like there, really. Yeah, I mean, there is some brutal stuff in that that little bit. I mean, the yeah. the child who wanders in, where you know they you clearly see that uh, the child is infected. 
But I will say, like, one of the odd things about the show is that there is some world building, but there's other things that are sort of, like, casually referenced. But, you know, it, 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 you kind of want to know more, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah, you, that's exactly right. It's, it's a, the QZ feels like a missed opportunity of world building, which yeah. I gather is different in the game. Oh, interesting. Okay. So. Anyway, Joel and Tess run into Marlene, the local Firefly leader, after a meetup gone wrong. Marlene offers a trade. Take a super bratty 14-year-old Ellie across town to the statehouse and into the hands of another squadron of Fireflies. In return, they'll get all the gear they need to head to Wyoming. Joel and Tess agree, but in a shocking twist, things don't go as planned. They've learned that Ellie is immune to cordyceps, and that there's a Firefly research base that might use her blood to synthesize a vaccine. Once the initial plan falls apart and Tess dies, it's up to Joel to spirit Ellie across the country. The bulk of the season chronicles Joel and Ellie's travels and the array of folks and communities they meet along the way. These run the gamut from Bill and Frank's adorable suburban abode to Tommy's anarcho-syndicalist commune of Jackson, Wyoming, to a seemingly liberated Fedra Cusi in Kansas City, to a very disturbing religious cult in Silver Lake, Colorado. The season ends with Joel delivering Ellie to the Fireflies in Salt Lake City, but finding out that they plan to basically kill her to extract her brain as a way of developing an antidote, and thereby forcing Joel to make a pretty difficult choice to save Ellie at a horrific price. Anna, does that about sum it up? Yeah, okay, and Dan, let's get into it. Yeah, <laughs> here we go. Let's get into it. Yep. I almost texted you as soon as the Joel massacre started. <laughs> because I was like, that wasn't a difficult choice. No, it was not. It was not a difficult choice for Joel, I don't think. This and is in episode think... eight, in which Joel literally goes through, I don't know, maybe like a dozen of the Fireflies to be able to get to the operating room. Some of them he does Ellie. not have to kill. To be very clear, yeah. some of them are... are murders of choice right right there's mm -hmm. someone who surrenders yeah and um he kills the doctor i don't think that was maybe necessary yeah like, i agree yeah, yeah yeah and he he goes on this rampage and mm -hmm. i was just waiting for that to happen like right. i mean of course he's going to do that yeah of course he is yeah, yeah and i have sort of some like world building problems like sort of the the weight of disbelief being dropped upon me mm -hmm. like rather than being raised mm -hmm. uh which is they're going to remove her brain? <laughs> yes. Okay. So, <laughs> let me put it this way. The show, and I think... There's th some steps. This is There's based on the video game. Between. The show sets it up as like, no, it's either we save all of humanity or you save Ellie. There is no in-between. There's no such thing as a biopsy. There's no such thing as like, you know, intermediate steps. Nope. No, no, no. There is some sort of, you know, like hand-waving about, no, 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 the... The this cordyceps is, is in the brain. This is the thing. The 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 brain thinks it's cordyceps, uh, and therefore we need to remove the brain. There's no other I, choice. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, talk about unobtainium. I mean, like <laughs> that'll it, be next week. Because because the thing is that that is so. I I believe that the show and the game want us to think about what that choice would be like. Right. Right. To be fair, that's what they're doing. I mean, it, there's a reason why. But as you're you're but arguing, my you, yeah. but what I kept thinking was my first question would be. Are you sure that's going to work? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, did you test this? Have you done a lab sample? Like, yeah, I have to try say that. It, it is like it, if I'm the parent of a child and uh -huh. the, the choice is the humanity or my kid, to make that a difficult choice, uh -huh. you have to know that the humanity 
saving is going to happen. Right. And this is, I, I think, one of the interesting things about this show is that it clearly, like, if you look at the reviews of the final episode, all the reviewers accept the choice as it is framed. Yeah. And I suppose that's a credit to the show that so many critics uncritically accepted that assertion. But, like, you know, when when Marlene says this, I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. That's it? Like, that's the choice? Like, hold on. You know, surely there are some preliminary steps you would want to take to determine that that's your only course of action. To determine that it worked. Yeah. Because also, if it doesn't work, if it's not it, right. you've killed the... You've killed the, the right, that's <laughs> a huge risk. Yes, absolutely. You've killed the golden goose, as it were. Right? And I, w- I will say, like, interestingly enough, th- this there is another zombie story called The Girl with All the Gifts. Oh, um, I love that. I love which is a wonderful that. novel that actually takes yeah. this point seriously, where yes. the doctor has to decide, do I actually biopsy this brain or not? But if I do that, I'm taking a huge risk because this is clearly the most developed, you know, thing. And the, the, uh, this way, the, the doctor in that novel is in some ways a monster, but like, even there, the novel at least gives the doctor the recognition that she, you know, it's a tough choice. Whereas in yeah. this case, it's just presented as, oh no, this is absolutely the right thing to do, even though we don't know if it's going to work. Dan, yeah. where did this doctor get his medical degree? That is my <laughs> other question. You want you want his bona fides. Fair well, enough. The world has been over for 20 years. Yeah, you yeah. haven't been able to get a fresh medical degree in 20 years. Okay, I'm assuming the doctor was like middle-aged and, you know, probably was like a young okay, resident Okay, okay. Yeah. Do we know? Like, I mean, people are pretending to be all sorts of shit, as we know <laughs> from the previous episode. That is a fair point. It's a real, yeah, like, you know, and LinkedIn is down. So, like, that's going to be a real problem. Down. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I was just now, assuming that. I, the, I yeah. personally don't have my degrees anywhere. Like, I don't carry them around and stuff. But I just feel like... I would want to know more about this doctor. Yeah. Does he know anything about immunology or epidemiology? Like, right. or is he just like a GP or who's a neurologist? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. like, is it a fucking chiropractor? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's a doctor of osteopathy. Is he a yeah, homeopath? Yes, because exactly. He sounds a little bit like homeopathy. I gotta say. <laughs> okay. And, okay. So, yeah. and then, so let's let's just even. Even if we take the choice seriously. So let's accept the choice because we're going to have to, but we, both of us have noted objections to that stark of a choice, but go ahead. Yes. Right. Objectives are both on like sort of a realism level and also on the re- on the level of like Marlena just being like, yep, this is it. Yeah. This yeah. is it. Yeah. We don't, we're not going to do anything else. These are your two choices. Because yeah. um, if it's, because I will say, if it's presented that starkly, mm-hmm. it is a tough choice. Yeah. However, I don't think it's quite the choice that people are talking about. Okay, go on. Because- I don't think choosing humanity over your child, like, means you love the child any less. Mm. And, uh, again, non-parent, hate kids, so take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> yes. So, But <laughs> but I'm thinking about it. I'm, I kid. Mm-hmm. I do think that, that that's what actually would make it a truly interesting moral dilemma, right? Mm-hmm. Is if you are even a little bit tempted to, to sacrifice your child because you do realize the gift of humanity, the gift that you might give the world. For so, Joel, it is not a tough choice. That, yeah. is, that is my problem. Mm-hmm. It is not a tough choice. He doesn't, he's not, this is not a dilemma for him. No. By the way, if we're going to be talking about like the, the sort of questions about the way the framing of the choice is, 
I, so a couple of things here. First of all, the obvious problem here is that Ellie is not consented. And by the way, oh, well, it, is yeah, in, yeah, yeah. it is entirely possible. And indeed, I think she would that, say yes. I the, think she would. Yeah, I think the episode clearly frames it as Ellie is fully, you know, if Ellie was fully informed, she would consent. Um, and for all I know, that is the the topic of the uh, the Last of Us Part Two. It's Ellie trying to find that another doctor to to take care of her in that way. But the other thing is that, and I hate this is like a, a sciencey thing. I don't think it. At one point, Marlene says it's a cure, and my response was, "No, it's not a cure." Like even as he's she's discussing it, it wouldn't cure anyone. Anyone who like would have this would still have it. It's an antidote. Like it would prevent someone who was bit it's from getting vaccine. sick. It's a vaccine. It's a vaccine. Exactly. Yes. It's a yes. vaccine. Thank you. Yes. And also, it's not even like. It- and we're we're getting bogged down in yeah, like the we are. lack of the science stuff, right. but it matters. It see the thing is, it matters because yeah. if you want this choice to feel real, the ch- like the science has to feel at least somewhat credible. Or it, I think, it yeah. has to like make sense, or it has to be yeah. at least hand waved in a more comprehensive way. Right. This right? Was, this was a case where I actually think a little more exposition was probably necessary, and it wasn't because that's the other. I will say, and this is a credit to the show. This la- you know, normally you expect a season finale to be like you know really long. And one of the things this show does well, and I think it's a strength of the show, is it doesn't belabor points. Like, the, no. the final episode is 45 minutes. It's a lean 45 minutes, and I don't feel there's anything wasted. Uh, a little bit more on, on it, which is to say, the the acting is what elevates this show oh, yeah. for me, mm-hmm. beyond its material, yeah. for sure. I mean, I think Pedro Pascal, yes, hot, interesting, all that, but also just doing a lot mm-hmm. with a character that doesn't have a ton of range, right. right? The character's range, it's one of those interesting things. For both of them, actually, Bella mm-hmm. Ramsey, too. Their characters don't have a wide emotional range. Right. But well, within that range, they're doing a ton of really subtle, great work. I would push back on, on on the Ellie character. I mean, Ellie is a 14-year-old girl. 14-year-old oh, girls... I, 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 correct have me if I'm a, have wrong. A, have an amplitude. Have, yes. a, have a high amplitude. There, there's a wide yes. variance there. And, 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 yes. and by the way, I think one of the things, like, I really like Bella Ramsey's performance. And I think part of it is because you see her at times be, you know, acting like an adult. And then there are times, particularly the, in the Kansas City sequence, where she's acting like an eight-year-old kid. And I was actually impressed with her ability to, to do that. I actually, and I'll def- but I'll defend my range comment a little okay. bit, which is I think it's it's a... I get to say this. It's a bipolar kind of personality, okay. right? Yeah. Like, there's not a lot of middle ground for a 14-year-old girl. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Right? So, like, her range is split in two, but I think it's still pretty limited. Mm-hmm. But I am trying to turn that into a compliment, mm-hmm. right? Like, they both do so much with, like, the not much emotion, like, yeah. not over the, the palette of emotions they are given. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they do a hell of a lot. Yeah. And, in fact, the most moving scene in the last episode is not Joel deciding to, you know... Mm-hmm. murderize yeah. a bunch of people it is the scene before when he confesses that mm-hmm. he intended to kill himself after his daughter died and that is why he has a scar on his forehead and yeah. then and talk about not belaboring things i loved the scene where he he says you know that was the, you know that's what the scar is and she says oh time heals all wounds mm-hmm. very lightly yeah although we all know what she means yeah. and he says it's not time that healed it yeah and then we just kind of move on. There's no like beat even really. Like, right. It's there's just, no swelling music. There's no hug. There's just like, you it's know. them. It's just yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, his massacre betrays that moment hmm. because 
He has been a violent motherfucker since the day we met him. <laughs> yes. yes. Indeed, he kills people to save his, his girl, Sarah. Right. On the day of the outbreak. Mm -hmm. He has no compunction about it. She, she actually is not comfortable with it. She's like, that was Mrs. Whatever. Right. Oh, to be fair, she was Mrs. Whatever was infected. Like that was the, true, true, yeah, true. Yeah, but yeah, like yeah. he's and also like they they like run over it, whatever. Like yeah, he's yeah. not concerned with anyone besides his family on day one. Right. And he actually so, he says that in the car at one point. He says yeah, like, you know, you family, you, you have to have something to live for. And with him, it's the family. Yeah. Right. And so his character arc is not he becomes someone willing to risk everything for his family. Right. Right. Like his character arc is that he once again allows himself to love someone new. Yes. He opens his, he, he makes his family a little larger. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. But the idea that this is like somehow the end of a character arc for me, just, it just falls apart. Like the thing that's important is that he loves her. And wouldn't it be amazing mm -hmm. if that increase of love for her somehow caused other kinds of character changes, right? <laughs> Like, mm -hmm. for instance, the ability to imagine an even larger circle of people you love. Mm -hmm. Like, say, for instance, the human race. Right. Because that's what's important about enlarging the circle of the people you love, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's that's what keeps us together as as a race. <laughs> like, See, this is where know? I actually, again, like, and we might disagree about this, but I think for me the most interesting, the character that elevates this, this show is for me, Ellie. It's not Joel. We've seen Joel's type before. And again, Pedro Pascal plays him really well. But the thing I did like about what, not what Joel does, but essentially the aftermath of it, and this is, again, I think Bella Ramsey yeah. doing incredibly yeah. good work, is that it is clear Ellie knows that Joel is lying to her on some level. You know, so Joel rescues Ellie from, from surgery and death. You know, Ellie wakes up because she's been put under for surgery. And Joel sort of lies and says, oh, it turns out there are plenty of people who were, you know, immune. And also, by the way, they're not going to, like, look for a cure anymore. And, like, it, it's – Joel is not a good liar. And so, like, Ellie, I think, intuits almost immediately that this is not entirely true. And then, you know, the, the show literally ends with Ellie asking Joel, okay, swear to me. And clearly on some level Ellie doesn't believe him. But I think also Ellie wants to believe him. And Ellie clearly needs connection. You know, Ellie has started off in this uh, in this arc, you know, completely alone. And what Ellie needs is connection. And I think that the trade-off that she has decided is that I finally have a parental figure and I will take that, even if the parental figure is perhaps not telling me the truth. I agree. And I mm -hmm. think that's a much more interesting reading of the show. I yeah. think that that is, makes the show more valuable mm -hmm. in some way. Because also I think very telling actual response from her right she doesn't say i believe you she says okay yes exactly yeah which is just okay that's what you're telling me right that's well, what you can read that you can read that a lot of different ways because yeah, yeah. i know that when people have lied when people i love have lied to me mm -hmm. a thing that i have done has just been like okay mm. that's what that's your story okay and it's possible that you're it. right it's possible that ellie but the point is is that in saying okay, she decides. She decides it's okay. She decides yeah. she's going to live with it, whatever exactly. it is. Yeah. Lie, not lie. I don't think she's decided she believes it at all. Right, I agree. Yes, or I mean, it's, it, I like this way. I'm legit curious for the second season, in in some ways, to answer this very question because I, you're right. Ellie is too smart to realize what's going. You know, to to not understand that this is a little bit shady, but at the same time, clearly her desire to to be part of a family, to be have some sort of connection, that isn't entirely understandable it's entirely human 
And here's actually where you get a more interesting answer to the question that Mazin and Druckmann say they've been asking, or not mm -hmm. even question, from the beginning, in the pre-show hype, yeah. they've told people, this is a show about the terrible things we do for love. Right. I've, I, maybe that poisoned me against the show to begin with. <laughs> okay. Because I think that's a stupid point to make. <laughs> I think that, that that is not a good point because every time in this show that a character is presented with a loved one in peril, right? they choose violence. As the way to save the loved one, yes. As when the way that, to save When the it's loved not one. guaranteed that that's the way to do it. Exactly. There's like often kind of just not even it's not even thought about like yeah. what that choice would be. And it's and it's a thoughtless kind of violence. Like mm -hmm. when Joel beats up the security officer yeah. in like the second or third episode, he wails on that guy mm -hmm. way beyond like the needs of the moment. And he's also I'm not sure he needed to die. Either. No, he didn't. Although, let me put it this way. This is where, like, that in that sequence, what, I mean, the show is very oh, he's clear. Triggered. He's, he's triggered. He's triggered. Like, I, yeah. I, it's, I'm not trying to say, therefore, everything is okay, but I under, you understand why right. he acts that way. Yeah. Right. But I think the, the thing that I keep thinking is when people choose violence mm -hmm. in those situations, there's something else happening as well. Yeah. Right? Like, but there's there is a reason why they choose violence because it's not the only option like love doesn't demand that we choose violence every time mm -hmm. it doesn't demand we choose violence every time our loved ones are in peril there are other things to do mm -hmm. right even and especially when you're presented with the, the needs of the few versus the needs of the many kinds of questions like we look for creative solutions. Yeah, most of us. I, the you only know? the only thing I would add here on the violence point, just to push back, a, not push back. I, I agree with you, but I or will, at least to speak, at right. least to speak, at I, least in, it's not just. It, but with Joel, it's just violence. Right. But violence. I will say, what is interesting to me is that Joel clearly doesn't want Ellie to follow his path. That to and me, this is where I say that the the show you've made the show more interesting by pointing this out. Yeah. Because then the question becomes. Will the desire for love mm -hmm. enable us to look, overlook violence? Yeah. Which is, I think, a much more interesting question hmm. than will love make you do violence? Yes. <laughs> of course it will. Yes, yes, it does. And also the other thing about it that I think is it kind of makes me roll my eyes is like Mason, as much as I think he's a cool dude, was like, "See, it's like court love is like cordyceps. Cordyceps makes people violent. Yeah, that and I was love not makes you violent. That I and really did dumb. not like at all. That is not a a that's a facile comparison at best. And and no, it's not because because yeah. if your brain's being run by a fungus, you have no choice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And and it's just he seemed it's one of those things I feel like a lot of smart people, maybe even myself is victim to this. I don't know about you, Dan, but once you come <laughs> up with like a cool idea, like yeah. you just are, are like you want to share the cool idea. Like you're like, I have this cool insight. And he's just like he's like giddy about sharing this. And <laughs> I, I, then I don't think he's actually thought it through. Possibly. So a lot of my thinking on this has been influenced by a really wonderful essay by Andrea Long Chu in New York Magazine or Vulture, their mm. their entertainment right. section, where she basically argues that the reason why Last of Us is good at all is because the parts of the Last of Us video game are not really video game. <laughs> like, like this, the parts, they're not using anything from the game. It's true. They... The, no, 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 this that is makes true. It good. They minimize the, the the game portion. And in fact, again, like even in that last in the the last episode, there there is that you know what is interesting to me is that Joel's violent assault, as you say, on everyone um, in the hospital. 
like they dial down the sound. It takes two or three minutes tops. It is not. They want to. They want to stress that there is violence here, but they're not trying to glorify it. I don't think in any way whatsoever. And also, she kind of points out that that this idea that video games are interactive in this way, and that mm-hmm. what makes that gives them this extra layer. That actually, in Last of Us, at least, you're still robbed of choice. Yes, apparently, like, in order to win the game, you have you to have kill to, the doctor. You have to kill the doctor. Yeah, and apparently, so, um, like when they tested the game. My understanding is, is that there were a lot of people who, when they got to that stage, kept like just literally like searching the entire OR trying to figure out something else they could find as a way of coming up with a solution, and they didn't. Now, and maybe that's a commentary about how we're all complicit in violence, but I also just don't like that. And I think it's a really interesting, the, the essay points out also that the big difference is that in the video game, Joel can die, mm, mm-hmm. and but he gets regenerated. Mm-hmm. Every time. Ah, okay. And that there's this sort of psychic bond that forms maybe between the player and Joel that you're trying to p- protect Joel mm-hmm. in the same way that Joel is trying to protect Ellie. Hmm. And I won't go on anymore, but I think that if you found anything I have to say interesting, you should go read that essay. And we can move on, Dan. I have said, <laughs> I have said my piece, maybe. <laughs> 99% of my piece has been said. We are just going on to the next section, which is how is this science fiction different from all other science fictions? So I actually think this is one of the ongoing debates animating the show's fans, Anna, because both the show's fans and the showrunners insist this is not a zombie show. And I have bad news for all of them. It's definitely a zombie show. But, you know, to be fair, I get why they they kind of think that, because actually chronologically in the show... After the Kansas City sequence, the entire second half of the show, when you rule out flashbacks, there are no infected in any of the show. So the almost the entire second half, they don't appear. But that said, this is still a zombie show. And the reason it's still a zombie show is a couple of things. First of all, again, you introduce the zombies in minute one. By minute ten, you're in a post-apocalyptic hellscape. That is exactly what happens, you know, in this show. Second... How do you become infected? Yes, the initial cordyceps is by ingesting. After that, you get bitten. And it turns out, with the exception of Ellie, there's a 100% infection rate where you will automatically turn into a zombie. Indeed, the way in which the show's fans often talk about how, no, 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 it's not a zombie show, and you know why? It's because it's about the human beings. Well, guess what? That is true of every zombie show, whether it is good or bad. Everything in the zombie genre has very little to do with the living dead and everything to do with how human beings react to the apocalypse. So the idea that this is somehow unique to The Last of Us is wrong. And anyone who, like, you know, marries that clearly has not understood anything about the entire zombie genre. Okay, rant over, Anna. I'm sorry. I had to get that out of my system. No, I appreciate it. And you're making me feel less bad about my little rant. So. Yes. <laughs> but not my not little rant, my very yes. long rant. Right. But uh, I will say that if in fact if anything, this show is actually more interested in zombies than your average zombie show, in part because we see the sort of evolution of the infected, from like the the clickers to the cauliflower heads to the bloaters, and that was an awesome scene, I'm not gonna lie, where you see the bloater come out in Kansas City. But, you know, I think part of the issue is is that I think the show's fans and this show is in some ways having an implicit conversation with The Walking Dead, which is the the sort of obvious zombie show that you compare it to. And I think there's a lot of ways in which the show is much better than The Walking Dead. 
The Walking Dead was a grim, you know, reasonably well done, but just utterly Hobbesian take on on society being a war of all against all. And that is not what this show is is doing. This show is asking different questions, and in that sense, it's interesting. But I think the primary way this show is different, and the, the way it's different from all other science fictions, is the cast is outstanding. This might be one of the best cast shows I've seen in, in years. And it's not just Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey. It's, you know, uh, others which we will uh, talk to as well. But, like, that's what elevates the material, far and away, in my opinion. I agree with all your points. <laughs> Sorry. I do wish there'd been a, a little more zombie. Yeah. Like, in the way that it's not a zombie, it's it, the argument that it's not a zombie show is that there aren't very many zombies. That's that's how it's not really a zombie Which is show, technically but... correct, again, in the second half of the show. And, and which actually, yeah. by the way, creates another world-building issue, which is... And I'm sorry to, to point this out, but like, uh, assumedly what happens when the outbreak starts is they get everyone into QZs and then they bomb the QZs. Like, this is the part I didn't quite understand. And also, why are they all still in the cities if that's where the infected primarily congregate? Sorry. I have no answers. Okay. I, I, I understood the order of operations slightly differently, okay. which may help, which is that they did not immediately get everyone into QZs. Uh, okay. Some of the massacre and bombing of civilians happened like on the way to QZs and okay. also outside of QZs when there was doubt about whether or not anyone had been infected. Right. Okay. So there's that. Mm -hmm. I do want to say that the show that I would compare this to is not The Walking Dead, it's Station Eleven. Yes, that is fair. And others have made that comparison, that's true, yes. I think Station Eleven is even better. Mm -hmm. This is very good. This is very, very good. Yeah. But I think the both the show and the book, Station Eleven, uh, have much more interesting questions about love, about survival, mm -hmm. about what, how, why we survive and what we do for love. And yeah. gosh, the importance of art and all of that. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think it's so interesting, like how impoverished the culture of this show is, the, the aftermath of the apocalypse. I mean, mm -hmm. truly, like just people, I think Station Eleven has a much more interesting way of saying like, no, people would create. Yeah. Yes, they're scavenging. Yes, they're living hand to mouth. Yes, like all these things are true, but it is the human impulse to create, to create beauty, to create community, all of those things. I think that's a good point. Let me put it this way. If, if you want to say that The Walking Dead is one end of the spectrum, which is just sort of nihilistic, grimdark, and Station Eleven is the no, people will actually want to, you know, create art, and art is survival is insufficient, that you need to have art. Yeah. There is a way in which The Last of Us is, is somewhat closer to The Walking Dead on that point about yeah. art. And I think that's true, which is a shame, because I actually, I think if it embraced this idea a little more, it would actually become a more interesting show, because there are other ways in which it suggests, you know, it doesn't just have to be this grim survival, but it does it does that enough so that it makes it tough. I think you're right. I, I want to make a slight tangent, which is that yeah. on our Discord, or I think it was mentioned on our Discord, that someone said, you know, one of the reasons that this show seems so grim or that it seems so unrelenting is it's missing the crafting element of the video game. Mm -hmm. And I got so excited for the idea that there was some part of the video game where, like, you knit. Like... <laughs> <laughs> or that like <laughs> Joel is like, stabbed. Can you knit this tourniquet? 
in the next 30 <laughs> like, minutes. Like you make, you know, like yeah. dream catchers or something. Like <laughs> the, there's like some aspect of the video game where you make art. Like I, uh, that was actually like, honestly, like my assumption was like, oh, that is really interesting. Like the video game recognizes that you can't have this unrelenting violence, mm -hmm. that you have to have some part of your life where you're doing something else. That is not what the crafting element of the game means, just mm -hmm. so you know. <laughs> the crafting element of the game <laughs> is like making weapons. <laughs> Fair enough. Out of like random shit that you find, like, you know, like alcohol and rags, you make a Molotov cocktail. Let's make a Molotov cocktail, cocktail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, but I, I, yes, I really, I did think knitting. I did think that it was like somehow... You made stuff to sell or something. <laughs> oh, okay. Fair enough. All right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> like, that's good. You know, but that you made like you, crafting. You made crafts. <laughs> and and that would be the break from the violence in the game. But no, there's no break from the violence in the game. Nope. Dan, let's talk about the characters. We mentioned how much we like the acting. Yeah. Uh, you first. So we've talked about Bella Ramsey and, and Pedro Pascal. I, I, I like both of them. As I said, I particularly like Bella Ramsey, I think, because Ellie's character, I think, added something that you don't always see in a, a typical zombie genre. But it's the casting of the smaller parts and the sort of, you know, the actors that appear in maybe one episode that are amazing. I mean, the episode that everyone was talking about was episode three. This is the one that chronicles Bill and Frank. Uh, Nick Offerman is Bill and Marie Bartlett is Frank. That episode, which I think was like maybe 75 minutes, felt like a movie. In, mm -hmm. And I mean that in a compliment. In a good way. In a good way, yes. It, it felt like that told a story that was touching and utterly, and it was unusual in a zombie genre because it really is a story about how love can blossom even in a world where the apocalypse uh, occurs. And in some ways, it was a more hopeful story, which is kind of weird because there's an assisted suicide And you know there. what? There's art yeah. in that story. Exactly. Too. Yes, yes. So you're right. So like they were amazing and they elevated uh, that episode tremendously. I liked Melanie Linsky as the Kansas City rebel leader. She, uh, I, I, let me put it this way. If Yellow Jackets has caused Melanie Linsky to be cast now in villains, villainous roles, this is good for everyone. It's good for Melanie Linsky and it's good for the art because she yeah. is, there is a ruthlessness to her character and like an, an amorality to it. It was, it, I, I really liked and even Scott Shepard, who plays uh, David, the uber creepy preacher, that was actually one of the videos where I saw like what you saw in the video game as opposed to what you see in the show. And just his line readings in the show like amp up the creepiness factor tremendously. He's a well-known Broadway actor, but like he just he kills that role. Um, it's extremely well done. And there were others that I think you liked, Donna, which I agree with. But but what do you got? Uh, I would add Lamar Johnson and Kayvon Woodward, who play mm -hmm. Henry and Sam. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think they make a disproportionate impact, uh, like like a lot of these these character actors do. Mm -hmm. uh, I also want to note that Kevin Woodward, who played Sam, is deaf. Right. And that As he is, is in the show, yeah. Yes, as he is in the show. And that's cool. And yep. also, Dan, I know you'll appreciate no one made a big deal about that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what I did was, like was that uh, it was representation, and no one made a big deal about it. Well, it was, but because it was there, it was pretty obvious. Right. But like, I will say, if, like, the making of in that, that particular episode was actually adorable because Bella Ramsey was talking about learning to sign with Kayvon, and, and it was actually quite heartwarming. I think. I also want to point out Nico Parker as Sarah. One episode, yeah. I had it. I actually had trouble finishing that episode mm -hmm. because I knew what was coming. Right, and she 
you fall in love with her over the course of like 10 minutes. Right. And that is not an easy thing to do. Like it was, it was, you know, you need that to be an utter tragedy. I mean, if that had been badly cast or she had not performed well, I think it would have undercut the entire show and she knocks it out of the park. I agree with you on that completely. And two other really small roles that, that do a lot, Graham Greene and Elaine Miles (laughs) as the two indigenous people. I think I said this on the Discord or somewhere. We're like, I actually would watch a spinoff just of those two oh, characters. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like, like that a, was, it would be, it's a, it's sort of like an all in the family almost. Yes. I don't know. That was what I thought of. Because I think it's because Elaine Miles' character is like so... Salty? I'm talking about doing a lot with a little. Yeah. Like, I mean, her eye movements are the way that the jokes fall. Every line <laughs> she says is gold. I mean, you know, like it's it's well done. It's it's good writing, but she just knocks it out of the park every single line. Yeah, no, like I actually kind of want to see. Like, I wonder what happened to the two of them. They they seemed fine. Yeah, they seemed fine. They seemed like they were doing well. Dan, that brings us to another part of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yes, Anna. I'll just ask it. I'll just ask straight out. Okay. Is there IR in this show? Anna, we have a job to do on this pod. And that is to say whether there is any IR in this show. And God help any motherfuckers who get in our way. <laughs> but <laughs> I got to say, the primary IR in this show is paradoxically the lack of IR. And by that, I mean, although the pilot references some trade between the QZs, I think we know that there's trade between Atlanta and Boston, although I don't know how. Like, I still don't know if there are planes that are flying at this point um, or how trade happens. What's clear is that the world has become just a group of small hamlets basically. And when that happens, there's not a ton of IR, frankly, because it's impossible to, you know, accumulate territory. It's impossible. There's no balancing. There's no bandwagon. There's none of that. It's just these small, isolated hamlets, and there's very little conflict between them, except between the Fireflies, I guess, and Fedra. But I will say there's there's sort of two ways in which I do think, you know, there's sort of larger political science, larger, you know, IR aspects here. The first is, and I talk about this in, in Theories of International Politics and Zombies, is that Inevitably, bureaucracies will screw up when confronting a emergency that is not does not like you know involve standard operating procedures. Standard operating procedures, by definition, are dealing with standard situations. Something like cordyceps, clearly a non-standard situation, and it's safe to say that I think the the bureaucracy screws up. You know, again, it's not obvious to me that bombing <laughs> the cities was really the right answer here. And I still like it. it, it again, it's a, it's both a credit and a detriment to the show that like that there's a prologue that takes place in Indonesia, where I think you get the logic of this, where you see those sort of first cordyceps victims and the mycologist says, bomb, that's your only solution. And I was like, really? I don't think that's your only solution. Just to be clear, I think it's a bad solution and it's not going to work because they're still going to be survivors. Like I, I couldn't quite figure that out. And again, like I, part of this was, your explanation on it might make a little more sense, but the way the show set it up is that it does seem like within the span of a week, they're simultaneously bombing cities and hurting them into QZs, which doesn't make any sense, particularly 10 or 15 years out when it becomes clear that once you're in the rural areas, and I think Joel says this at one point, the infected can't exist. So that seems like a really strong selling point to live in the rural areas and not in the cities. I think he says they're out there. But I think maybe they're more rare. I don't know. They anyway, might be rare, like, but even if they're rare, it's, that's it's still the that's the point. The world building is a problem. The world building is, yeah, 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 The world yeah, building yeah. is 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 the art of apparently the game and the the mm-hmm. you know art of the show. Like what makes it resonant is not the world building. But I know? will add this. Like let me put it this way: precisely because the authorities screwed up, 
again, credit, you know, that's another data point in favor of Joel doing what he does. Because are you going to take Marlene's word for this? Is Marlene taking the doctor's word for it? Like Again, where did he get that degree? Yeah. I'm on team Joel here. Like, what the hell? How did, you know, I'm going to trust the doctor on this? Why do we know? You know, what does he know? Like, so, you know, generally speaking, erosion of trust and authority and expertise is a result of the apocalypse. And I can't blame any of them for this. All right. I, 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 t- I, take, your t- I take your point. Yeah. Anna, I have a question for you. Oh, yes, Dan. What is it? Is there a critique of capitalism in this show? Dan. Yes. Capitalism is fruitful. <laughs> it multiplies. It feeds and protects. Or that might be communism. I don't know. Every <laughs> economic system I've ever loved has died or left me. <laughs> Which is why I can't decide what this show is saying about capitalism, mm-hmm. if it is saying anything. I mean, obviously, there is a commune on the show. Right. Well-run, idyllic commune. Yeah. I do assume it'll fall apart because this is television and a well-run idyllic commune would not be much fun. I will say this is, by the way, where the sort of past zombie genre affected how I watched that episode. I kept effect. I kept expecting there to be some dark side to Jackson. Right. I I was like, this is, this isn't going to work. This is like, something's wrong here. And it turned out, no, that it actually was a pretty well-functioning commune, which is extremely rare, particularly for a zombie show, but it was kind of nice to see. And I would say that's almost the same as is the critique of capitalism is that there's not much capitalism. Like <laughs> it, it, yeah. it's it's apparently a classless society, uh, except in the QZ where it's authoritarian, and and there is capitalism in the QZ. So th- maybe yeah. that's like a critique of capitalism right there. I want to say something that I thought was kind of funny and made me think, which is that in a weird way, it's both a scavenging subsistence existence Mm -hmm. and a post-scarcity existence because Mm. a lot of stuff is just there for the taking yes that's correct i will say this in some ways the show does offer at least mild support for capitalism this might be why you're having a difficulty dealing with this in in two ways that's why i don't like it as i've kind of absorbed the fact that it was pro-capitalist right well it is pro-capitalist in two ways first one of the things that the, the show actually again is interesting about is that ellie clearly has this sense of awe about the way the world used to be you know, okay. whether it was yeah. planes or cars or, or things like that, the video games, she thinks it's all amazing. And by the way, she's not wrong about that in terms of like, if suddenly all that stuff went away, like, you know, it's, it is amazing that like that, those things are, uh, exist. The other thing was the episode with Bill and Frank, where Frank says, we're going to trade. There is value to be had in trade. And in, indeed the lunch that they have, you know, with, with Joel and Tess, the whole point of it is they can, you know, they can trade in exchange and that yields benefits in the form of strawberries or what have you so like you know that that's the other thing it's actually pro i'd argue that trade is not necessarily capitalism okay like <laughs> we can all right now now we get into the dark you know the, you know hole of adam smith and we don't need to go there so but but fair enough yeah let's, let's, let's okay. not go there yes. uh, there also is a scene where joel tries to explain politics on some level to ellie and i, I he says something about people disagree i i, I just vaguely remember oh, yeah yeah I don't know. But I think that one just tiny flaw in the way that Ellie, you, seeing Ellie's fascination with the past as a you know boosting of yeah. capitalism right. is I think that's supposed to seem naive. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. All right. Uh, I found an old guitar. Ding. <laughs> It's Discord time for, notes. Yes, it's time for Discord and Notes. This is where we uh, take questions from the Discord, from our patrons, 
who, you know, get to ask us stuff about whatever it is we're talking about, and we will provide answers. So our first question uh, comes from Doug O, and his question is, how big can Jackson get while still being communist? In some ways, Anna, you you pointed this out, it, it, or you just you just said this, and I think it, it provides the answer. Part of what's going on is that they are living in a post-scarcity world in some ways because there's so much housing stock that it's underpopulated. And basically, my answer to this is when the housing stock runs short, or when other you know once scarcity starts kicking in, I'm not sure the commune is going to last. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. Yeah. Like, I, I think that you could argue that the cult was a kind of commune until things started to <laughs> run out. <laughs> they they yeah. literally are sharing everything in that commune. Yeah, uh, to yeah. each according to his need. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next question is from Trent Diamante, which is, does the show have an overarching theory of human nature? Uh, Anna, you've talked a lot about this. Is there anything you want to add to this? I think one way to frame it that I haven't quite framed it before mm -hmm. is the idea that human connection and human community aren't necessarily civilizing. Mm -hmm. Like we don't necessarily yeah. improve as humans by mm -hmm. contact with other humans. Mm -hmm. I, I think an interesting exception to that is Bill and Frank. Yeah. Who are, I would argue both improved. I mean, obviously one more than the other, mm -hmm. but <laughs> they, they, become better versions of themselves yeah. like through being with each other and yes you could argue that joel becomes a better version of i don't see nope you can't argue it nope <laughs> you cannot argue that joel becomes a better version of himself through contact with ellie you can argue that the commute the commune in jackson also functions like this that that joel's brother is becomes a better becomes version, a better version yeah. of himself. yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think though the main point of the show is that that's not true that the show does not think that i think i have a more capacious view of the show i think the point of the show is that human nature contains multitudes that you can't have a you know for every joel you can have a <laughs> multitudes of fungi and... <laughs> no. but then yeah human nature you know human nature contains multitudes but humans need to connect with other humans it, i mean that's the the bill and frank episode i think was the nicest way of doing this which was you know bill thought he wanted to just live alone. And it turns out he was a much better person when he didn't. But that sometimes that connection clearly exacts a terrible price. Ping, 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 oh, ping. What's that? Oh, oh my oh, God. Oh. It's like. I think it's bullets. a bloater coming up or something. It's a debris field. Yep. We've talked a lot. I just want to say just clearly that the cult episode really bothered me. <laughs> Why did it bother you, if I can ask? I mean, like, you know. It's not a cannibalism with all that. I mean, obviously, <laughs> did you yes. Watch the, did you see the episode? I did watch the episode. I, again, what I thought was Scott Shepard was incredibly creepy, and like I, I but I, I was Im impressed by that. But like when you sort say of this, two, yeah. two levels. Okay, go ahead. One is I felt like the the pedophile angle came out of left field in a way. Yeah. Which, which sometimes pedophilia does. Yeah. I don't mean that as a joke, but mm -hmm. like it can be unexpected. It, it can be people you least expect. But when he started talking to her about like, we can rule this place right. together. I was like, what? <laughs> like, what? Where did that come? And how did also? Yes, we as viewers know that Ellie is very special. Mm -hmm. If you met her once. Right. Or even twice. Mm -hmm. Would you think <laughs> that she was the person you wanted to run? A cult with that's like, the team that i am going to break several morals to yeah no that's yeah, yeah, fair enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and that's that i don't mean to that sounds sort of weird but like it was just out of nowhere and i, I he had menace but not that kind of menace mm -hmm. 
And I, I think the show might have done better to either seed that a little bit more, which would be very squicky, but mm -hmm. okay, but might be, be better narratively, mm -hmm. or to just make it a different kind of command that he has or attraction that he has to her. Like he wants a daughter, you mm -hmm. know, or, but, but then you, he has to be sexually interested in her in order to justify that the incredibly scene. brutal murder that subsequently takes place. Yes. Yeah. And that's what it felt like to me is almost like they made it that, uh, that gross so that you would, so it would justify it. No, no, no. What you're objecting to, which I think the show is guilty of at times, is you can see the strings being pulled. Um, yeah. You know, and that's fair. Okay, so a couple... Anything else, Dan? Yeah, oh, I, have yes, a, I have a couple things. Um, first of all, these are just small points. All of the pre-apocalyptic scenes are fantastic. Like, the show opens with that, like, PBS-style documentary from the 60s. And I think it's John Hanna, the actor, like, you know, basically spells out the fear of, of fungi. And that was an incredibly disturbing scene. And I actually had to Google to see it. Wait, is he right about that? No, it turns out not. Okay, good. I'm feeling good. But like, that's well done. You know, a couple of the, the plot weaknesses, like, you know, was Kansas City really that hard to navigate when they go off the highway? Like that, I couldn't quite buy either. Like, you know, occasionally there are times where you like sort of wonder. The show's geography is suspect. Yes. Let's say that. Again, the 10 miles out of Boston. <laughs> Anna, I'm not kidding. I do literally live 10 miles outside of Boston. And boy, my, you know, Boston. Did you have to stop to laugh? We did. did. No, we actually, we actually paused it. Like I took a picture of that. Everyone memed it. We were like, my wife and I just laughed for like a good couple minutes after that. And again, it's puzzling because the show really does invest a lot of, you know, craft. And you're like, why would you not know that that looks nothing like 10 miles east of Boston? It was just very confusing to me. Two last points. First of all, I don't know about you, one of the things that worked for me in the last episode is that it was actually kind of unsettling how they flipped the script where Joel suddenly becomes the chatty, awkward dad and Ellie is quiet, which which completely inverted what the show had been doing for like the first half of the season. And like that was, I was like, oh, oh no, I see myself in the awkward dad. That is very disturbing. Oh, like, yes, yeah. I did really, I, I did think that was very effective. Yeah, it was effective. And finally, I forgot in terms of talking about the actors, a particular shout out to Ashley Johnson. She was the voice and actor who played Ellie in the video game. And the show does write by a lot of the actors who did the voice roles in the the video game voice and body roles? Voice and actually. body roles. They did yeah. the move, move, capture, movement capture. Too. Right. So the the actor who played Joel winds up being in, in the uh, cannibal cult, I believe. The actress who played Marlene actually plays Marlene in the show. In the case of Ashley Johnson, she gets an incredible ten minute sequence as Ellie's mom, and really does a fantastic job. And actually, it was it was it was a rare case where it, like both works on the the show's level, but it also worked out as a meta level in terms of she is the mother of Ellie in some ways. So yeah. Yeah, I, I think just to repeat something that we've already said, but it it's really incredible acting. Like that is what that is what makes the show so great. It's funny. Like I got frustrated with the show, and mm -hmm. you were like, "Oh man, you didn't like the show." Like when you saw my notes. Yeah, yeah. I would. I'm going to watch season two. Yeah. Not just because of Pedro, I, and I think it's it's a compelling emotional journey, even if I don't like some of the choices. Right, and I take your point that the show is not perfect, and I think one of the things we didn't quite talk about, but it's worth mentioning at this point, is that there is, I think, something called prestige blinders, where yeah. if you are watching a prestige show like this, you know, or, and not even 
sci-fi like Perry Mason for example or you know some other show that is is Succession. W- yeah, Succession. You know, it causes you sometimes to overlook you are willing to do work for the show which means you're going to overlook the times where the show is like yeah that was a little hand wavy i'm not sure that entirely works that's a little bogus and so forth see also okay. last season of game of thrones yeah oh god yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right i think that about wraps it up dan do we have anything left to say i forgot to say i have a website on com. my writing workshop next season will start on April 11th. Oh, good. 10 weeks of very uh, high touch is the term that I've heard, although that sounds weird. It does. <laughs> uh, very, and see, there's no way to say it that sound, doesn't yeah, sound yeah, like yeah, weird. Yeah. But uh, it is a very intense, nope, see, nope, can't do it. What I mean is you will get a lot of attention from me and a lot of individual feedback <laughs> uh, from the other people in the class. Fair enough. Uh, 10 weeks of writing workshop with me. Go to honorarycox.com. Any last words, Dan? Keep this channel open for more.